produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that we would learn from you what it is that we need to know this day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of you might have noticed uh, a saxophone player. with Steve, you're here. How are you, brother? Saxophone player uh, with us today, that is Will Bostock. Some of you know him as the owner of Blue, which is up the street. We're delighted to have you with us this morning. I know him because uh, his son, Marcos, is here at Valley Christian School, so it's delightful to see this new side of you. It's great. All right. Uh, my family, by the way, is in a rain-soaked field in Cumberland, Maryland. They paid a lot of money to go to this rain-soaked field uh, to attend a bluegrass festival. I will be uh, driving there a little bit later. So each Sunday, it's my job to stand up here and to talk about whatever passage of Scripture we're uh, studying that week. And the week running up to Sunday... I spend a lot of time digging into the text and reading commentaries and trying to figure out what the text means and trying to discern what it is that God wants to say to us through this particular text to us as this particular group of people here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. It's a little bit like what I did when I taught philosophy at Carlo College a couple of times a week. I'd stand in front of a class of students and I would talk about Aristotle or Descartes And before the class, I would have carefully read the material that I needed to cover in that class, and I would have in mind what it is that I thought that the students needed to know before they left the class that day. Preparing a sermon and preparing a philosophy lecture aren't so different. In both cases, there are some ancient texts that we're trying to understand, whether it was written by Plato or Paul. And it has been my job to explain the text in a way that helps the students or the parishioners to understand a little better than they would if they had just read it on their own. In some ways, a Presbyterian sermon and a college philosophy lecture aren't so different, but where they part company is that there's never a quiz after a sermon. And I think... Churches might have something to learn from college classrooms in this regard. An occasional quiz might do us some good. Now, don't misunderstand me. A quiz is not an implement of torture. A quiz is not a punishment. A quiz is designed to reveal what the student knows. A quiz shows the teacher what the teacher failed to communicate and what they need to reteach. If understanding chapter 1 is a requirement for understanding chapter 2, then there's no sense in going on to chapter 2 until we've mastered chapter 1. And so as we come to the beginning of chapter 5 in the book of Romans, I feel like we need a quiz, a quiz on justification. I feel like we need to make sure that we understand justification because in Chapter 5, Paul begins to talk about some of the consequences 
of justification. Since we're justified, we have peace with God. Since we're justified, we have access to God. Since we're justified, we rejoice in hope of God's glory. All of which is great to hear, but maybe we should see if we can first answer four simple questions about justification since all of those other things depend upon justification. What does it mean to be justified? Why would I want to be justified? What happens if I'm not justified? How can I be justified? I've put those four questions on a quiz sheet. It's in your bulletin. And I put the textbook answers on the back of the sheet, no peeking. And I invite you to take that quiz for yourself this week. Because if we misunderstand justification, we misunderstand the gospel. And if we misunderstand the gospel, we misunderstand the whole Bible. So take the quiz home with you and see how you do. Then let's talk about it next week. This week, Paul turns a corner in his letter to the church in Rome... He began his letter by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he tells us why we need this salvation, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and when Paul says all, that includes atheists who deny that there is a God. It includes pagans who worship things that God made. But it also includes good religious people like us who worship the one true God. When Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he's talking about everyone, including everyone in this room, including me. Then Paul shows us that while God's law points out the ways in which we sin, the ways in which we fall short of the glory of God, it isn't much good. The law isn't much good in actually helping us live righteous lives, in helping us to not fall short of the glory of God. And when it comes to justification, the law is completely worthless. And that's because while the law shows us God's will for our lives, our sin problem is deeper than just knowing the right thing to do. Anyone who has ever tried to lose weight or to stop procrastinating or to be more patient or to save more money or tried to do whatever good thing that they wanted to accomplish, anyone who has ever tried and failed realizes that just knowing the right thing to do isn't the same thing as getting it done. God's law tells us how we should live our lives. But actually living that way is more than just a matter of knowledge. Our sin problem isn't in our brains and in our intellects. It's in our hearts and in our wills. It's in our desires and in our habits. Paul tells us that in the gospel, a righteousness apart from the law, separate from the law, is revealed. A righteousness by faith. And as it turns out, that is always the way it's been. Even our father in the faith, Abraham, was accounted righteous, not because he kept the law, but because he believed God. Paul tells us one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so now, beginning in chapter 5, Paul begins to give us some of the consequences of this justification. 
He names three benefits of justification. Peace with God, access to God, and hope of the glory of God. So let's begin with peace with God. Peace, of course, is the absence of conflict. And conflict requires at least two parties, in war and in peace. Conflict, or the lack of conflict, cuts in two directions. There are times when I am battling with my wife. And there are other times, I can say this because she's not here, there are other times when she's battling with me. And sometimes we're both battling with each other. Peace only comes when everyone's happy with everyone else and no one's battling anyone. Now, I know that none of you have conflict in your marriages, but my point is this. Peace with God means on the one side that we are not battling God. And on the other side, that God is not battling us. Of course, it's we who start the fight, so let's talk about our battle with God. Romans 8, 7 says... The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our fleshly nature, our worldly nature, that part of us which is opposed to God ever since the fall, that old human nature is in an ongoing battle with God. And that's just how we are. And it's a reality that we need to own up to and deal with. We battle with God because God's law curbs us. It restricts us. It directs us. And something about our willfulness and our pride and our selfishness balks at curbs and rejects direction like a child. We don't like it when we're told no. And so we fight. This fight against God has gone on ever since Satan's rebellion in the deep past. Nothing new about it. We see it all of the time all around us. We see it in our own hearts. About 15 years ago, James Wood, the senior editor at the New Republic uh, Journal magazine, published his first work of fiction. It was called The Book Against God. And it's a comic novel about a man stuck in the doldrums of graduate school trying to finish his Ph.D. in philosophy. His marriage is falling apart. His house is a wreck. But instead of working on his dissertation, he fritters away his time writing a book that he keeps hidden from his wife, a book called The Book Against God. This waste of time is a refutation of all faith and religion and everything that his clergyman father had stood for. Now, those of you who know me know that this novel strikes a little too close to home. And I have known plenty of angry young men raging against God in this way. Maybe not in a book-length work, but in blog entries and Facebook postings and tattoo designs and dorm room conversations. It should seem to us, sadly or comically, futile... This battling against God, the eternal creator of the universe. I can't believe in a God who would permit the Holocaust. I refuse to worship a God who won't accept me the way I am. 
That's like arguing with gravity or the second law of thermodynamics. I can't believe in a force of nature that causes planes to fall out of the sky. I refuse to accept a law that accounts for my coffee going cold. It's just not a fight you can win. I understand the rage. Infinite human pride is like a raging child. I understand the rage, and I've experienced this rage myself. But I hope you understand the futility and the insanity of arguing with God. He is who He is. That's what His name, Yahweh, means. And the sooner we accommodate ourselves to His reality, the sooner we discover happiness. The root of our battle against God is the realization that if God is God then I'm not God. If God is God, then I need to listen up when He speaks. If God is God, then I cannot live my life any way that I want and get away with it. Somehow we sense the truth of that, probably because we're created in God's image and that that truth is implanted in our DNA. We sense that truth and so our spirits rebel and we become outlaws impotently raging against God. So that's our battle with God. But the battle can also be from the other side. God can be at war with us. When David sings, day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's a battle. When Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, that's a battle. When John gives us this beautiful vision in heaven, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them. With a rod of iron. He will tread the wine pressed in fury, in the fury of wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a battle. There are times when the hand of God is against us. But then there are times when God, in an act of pure and undeserved mercy, moves toward us in peace, disregarding our own raging hostility toward Him. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Ephesians 2.14 says of Jesus, He Himself is our peace. In our reading from Romans chapter 5 this morning, Paul tells us, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God makes war and God makes peace. He is the sovereign of the universe. He does as he wills. And when God makes his peace with us, then the battle is over and the struggle ceases. In his sovereign grace, Christ died for us while we were still battling with Him in His his undeserved mercy. Christ died for us while we were His enemies. And now, for those of us who are in Christ, 
the fight is over and we find ourselves at peace. We have been conquered by God's love and we have no more reason to fight and we have no more reason to fear God's wrath because against us he has laid down his sword. As Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The second thing that justification brings to us is access to God. The immediate consequence of the fall was that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and an angel was posted at the border of the garden with a flaming sword to prevent them from returning. When they had been in the garden, they enjoyed easy access to God. God walked with them in the evenings, but all of that changes when sin entered into their world. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil, which is also to say, We're so filthy that God can't bear to look at us. In the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was doubly removed from ordinary people by an outer and an inner curtain. Only the high priest was allowed into the presence of God, and he could only go in once a year. And when he went in, they tied a rope around his leg to drag him out in case he was struck dead. But then something very strange happens. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the people was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew narrates the scene for us. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's a strange scene. Matthew doesn't explain what it all means. But it seems the tearing of the curtain was a sign that the division which separates people from God has been removed by the death of Jesus. The blood of Christ washes away sin. And it is sin, our pollution, which makes the presence of God so dangerous to us. Because of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, God is no longer far off and distant. He's no longer inaccessible and remote. Because of Jesus, God draws near to us and we have access to him. Paul says, through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When I think of access to God, I think of the story of Esther. Esther, the Jewish orphan who was married off to the king of Persia. Though she was the king's wife, she wasn't permitted to enter into the king's presence unless he called for her. She had no access. To come before the king unbidden was to risk death. But then a crisis arises 
that endangered all of the Jews in Persia. And Esther has to make the hard decision of risking her life to go before the king to plead for mercy on behalf of her people. Such is the power of a king. The power of life and death. And such is the power of the king of the universe as well. In our own rights, we can't come before God without being struck dead. But because of Jesus and his atonement, we have access. Now we can approach the throne of God without fear. Now we approach knowing that we have access in Jesus Christ and that God the Father receives us the same way he received Jesus as one of his own children. As we read in Hebrews, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No fear. No fear of being struck down or struck dead because we have access. Access to what? Access to the grace in which we now stand. When we stand before God through the access that has been bought for us by Jesus, we stand in the light of God's grace. We stand there not as people who have to fear God, but rather as children on whom God looks with favor and grace. Have you ever seen a parent beaming with pride and joy as they watch their child? That's what it's like when we stand in God's grace. I hope that we believe and hold on to that truth. That we are welcomed in God's company. That we have access to God because of Jesus Christ. That we can come to God with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus to whom we have been united through faith. If you have been united to Christ by faith in Christ, what God sees when he looks at you is his own son in his purity and in his obedience. May the promises of Scripture be alive in our hearts and in our minds. May we come to God with great confidence, without fear or cowering, but in full confidence knowing that we have access because of Christ's holiness into which we have been united through faith. And finally, another consequence of the justification we receive by faith is hope of the glory of God. Because we are justified, we have a hope of glory. Now, hope with God is different from hoping in the Phillies. We hope they will win the World Series, but maybe they will or maybe they won't. But hope with God is a clinging to God's promises which will, with absolute certainty, be fulfilled. Hoping with God isn't a matter of playing the odds. Hoping with God instead is holding on during the time that the promises remain unfulfilled. Hope is a kind of spiritual patience. I know the payoff is coming. I just have to hold on. So what is the hope that Paul mentions here in Romans 5? He writes... And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What is this glory of God that we're hoping for? Well, as it turns out, it is nothing less than becoming like Christ himself. It's nothing less than the culmination, the consummation of God's plan, eternal plan for you and for all of creation. 
The way things are right now is not the way they should be. But the time is coming when God will set all things to right and His plan for creation, His plan for you individually will be culminated, consummated. That's what the Bible means when it talks about glory. Jesus said that He would come back and that He would take us to be with Him forever and when we are with Him, we will have resurrected and glorified bodies, bodies like Jesus' body. After he was raised from the dead, Jesus had a real body, a real glorified body, a deathless body. We see a hint of this glory that we are promised in the story of the transfiguration. You remember this story. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus onto top of this mountain. And when they're up there, they meet Moses and Elijah in glorified bodies. That's the hope. That Paul is talking about. That's the hope that has been fundamental to Christians since the very beginning. That's the hope that we affirm in the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting which will take place in that resurrected, glorified body. The Christian faith is never complete, Without the resurrection of the body, our bodies and life everlasting. Never lose sight of that fundamental hope that the saints have held on to since the very beginning. The Apostle John talks about this hope also. He writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are God's children now, which is a wonderful thing, full of privileges, full of blessings. But there's more coming. Our salvation is not yet complete. We will be like him, we are told. We will be like Jesus when he comes again. We have this promise and hope of our eventual glorification because we've been justified by faith. This journey toward being fully like Jesus begins the moment we place our faith in Jesus. In that moment, we are justified. We're declared righteous. We are adopted as sons or daughters of the Most High. From that moment until the day we die, we undergo a gradual process of sanctification, a process of becoming less like our old fleshly, worldly self and more like Christ. The training and the trials of this life are given to us as a grace to help in our sanctification. They are the refiner's fire that purifies us so that more and more each day we walk with Christ and we walk toward Christ. But our final state over here is glorification. And that will happen when we see Jesus again and we are changed. As Paul says, we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. That's the hope. It's different than our hope that the Phillies will win the World Series because this hope 
is certain beyond doubt. But it is a hope that requires patience because it only comes at the end of our time. So Paul tells us, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. Access to God. Hope of the glory of God. These are three big reasons to place our faith in Jesus. If you haven't yet placed your complete and total trust in Jesus, then I invite you to do that today. When you believe in Jesus with your whole heart and when you confess him with your mouth to others, you will in that very moment be justified before God. And because you're justified, you will then be at peace with God. No more battles, just friendship with God. You will have access to God. You can come to him without fear or without any danger. And you will have hope of glory, hope of having a new and eternal life in a glorified body, a body that's like ours, but somehow different, deathless and more wondrous. If you have already placed your faith in Jesus, if you are trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins, then I encourage you to savor the beauty of what God offers you in addition to your justification. Justification is great, but justification is only the beginning of your story, only the beginning of the benefits that you have in Christ. Enjoy your peace with God. Take advantage of your access to God. And savor the hope that soon and very soon you will live forever in a glorified body. These are amazing promises. They're absolutely trustworthy. Amazing blessings. Absolutely mind-blowing. And these are ours in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, for your promises, we give you thanks. And this morning we pray as well for the gift of faith to hold on to these promises in hope, trusting you with our present and with our future. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.